fashion. This is all in for the love of the game. This is Love Set Match. Andre Agassi had this goal, you don't have to be better than everyone else in the draw when you go out on the court. Like, you have to be better than someone that's across the net. I think you got to stay active in a sport sense, you know, go out there, do some sports. I think it always makes you feel better, maybe more tired in the very moment, but actually the rest of the day feels better. And then I think giving back as well, you know, making other people happy is going to give you a good feeling too. Hi guys, welcome to Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. I'm your host, Philip Kim, also known as Coach PK, the tennis pro for the Langham Huntington Hotel in sunny Southern California, and boy is it hot out here. And I'm also the executive director for the nonprofit Love Set Match. Tennis Pal Chronicles is sponsored by Tennis Pal, the best app to find people to play with. So visit TennisPal.com to download the app today. It's available on Android and Apple, and it really is great. I use it every day to find people to play with, so check it out. I'm excited to share with you my interview with a tennis journalist from London as we recap the stunning Wimbledon results. Did you guys watch it? It was just incredible. But first, just a quick update with what's happening around here at Love Set Match. Well, Valerie is off to see Nick Kyrgios... Gail Monfils, Taylor Fritz, and Diego Schwartzman, among others, tonight at the Ultimate Tennis Showdown. It's happening this very minute at the Dignity Health Arena in Carson. And I'm so excited to recap that experience with her when she returns. That's going to be a fun podcast. Special shout out to the USTA for offering Love Set Match free tickets, which we were able to use as a fundraiser for our mission. And thank you so much, everyone who donated for that great fundraiser. And speaking of mission, we are in full summer swing of our free tennis classes offered to kids in East Los Angeles. Yep, they're absolutely free and they're in partnership with LA County. We are hosting these classes at three different parks and reaching so many kids who would never have the experience of a tennis class or a tennis lesson from a tennis coach. But more importantly, we hope we're creating great memories for these kids to fall in love with the sport we are so passionate about ourselves. And through these relationships, offering encouragement, fitness advice, motivation to live a healthy lifestyle, and so much more. Just being a part of their community is really a blessing. There are a lot of pictures of these classes on my Instagram, philipkimpk. If you want to see the joy of these kids' faces, I will put a link in the show notes. Hey, and if you want to support our mission, support the mission of Love Set Match, you can donate in two ways. First, you can just zell us at email aces at lovesetmatch.net, N-E-T. Second, you can donate on our Facebook page directly, lovesetmatch.org. So it's Facebook slash lovesetmatch.org. And please subscribe to our page to see all the great things that we're doing, including the free tennis classes, because we believe there should be free tennis for all. So thank you so much for your generous donation. Our guest today is giving us an inside look at Wimbledon and the epic five-hour men's final. It seems only appropriate that we partner with a tennis passionista from the UK, doesn't it? Well, Martin Keaty writes about tennis, including tennis history, for Last Word on Tennis, or LWOT for the insiders for short. He is based in London. And his work can be found by searching either Martin Keaty, author, 
L-W-O-T. On Twitter, you can find him at M-R-T-N-K-E-A-D-Y or his website, theshakespeareplays.com. I think you're really going to love his insightful take on Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. We had a great conversation, so please welcome Martin Keady for the first time to the Tennis Pal Chronicles. He's beaten the best of all time. He's beaten a man who is virtually invincible on this court. And just with all the great finals, you see the champion being embraced and embracing the people who made it possible for him. The door into the players' box. Juan Carlos Ferreira, another world number one. Many coaches and many people have played their part in the development of this young man. Father, brothers, brother-uncles. His grandfather. In many ways, it takes a village to raise a boy, and this is a community effort. It's wonderful. Hi, Martin. Thank you so much for joining me on Tennis Pal Chronicles. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Philip. Thank you so much. And you are where in the world? I'm in London. I write for Last Word on Tennis.com or LWOT, which is a global platform for tennis, the global sport. I'd say it's only second only to football, soccer for being the, the sport with the greatest reach. So it makes sense. There are writers throughout the world. That's great. And apparently you have such a passion for tennis that you post on Twitter a lot because that's how we met you. Andy, who runs our Twitter account, says that you are so great and um, also share all of the, the posts and the writing that you do. And we really have appreciated your writing, uh, think that you're a great writer, obviously passionate about tennis. So let's just jump right into Wimbledon. I, I thought it was so appropriate to have somebody from England talk about Wimbledon for us on the podcast. What's your take on what happened this year? Well, four or five days on from the magnificent men's final, which I'll concentrate on. Uh, like everyone else, I feel terribly sorry for Angebert. She couldn't win the women's final, but equally, Von Drusheva was terrific. So on the men's final, um, as I wrote for LWOT, it has to be seen as the greatest debut or maiden or first win at Wimbledon of the Open era. It's that 
extraordinary a an achievement unfortunately it was that extraordinary a match it was one of the great finals that's not just recency bias by any objective it was a great final a true it really was a thriller well it was it was tennis it was a five act drama like a shakespeare play for something to be truly epic there has to be time and i know the great billy jean king who like everyone in tennis i adore but only Allah is perfect she maintains that um, the men should come down to three sets they only play five sets at the majors and you see the difference in a truly epic final the term epic means to take a put simply a story that takes place over time and it was a great five-act drama with all the turning points of a great play or a great story of any kind so it was magnificent how did you feel after that first set when Djokovic was so dominant? Well, probably as bad as Carlos Alcaraz himself. I mean, <laughs> as he admitted afterwards. But what was extraordinary was, given what had happened in Paris less than a, a month ago, certainly very recently, where he'd had the full cramps and he admitted it was because of nerves, you thought, my goodness, you know, this is a continuation of Paris. He'd lost the last three sets, I think, cumulatively in Paris and Wimbledon for two games. And Novak was at his best, absolutely imperious. And the fear was that it was going to be a washout. But then Carlos Alcaraz does what Carlos Alcaraz does, which is he is the fastest learner I've ever seen in tennis. And I've seen a lot of the open era. He learns so quickly of all his qualities. That's probably the defining one. They talk about fast twitch fibers. Well, he has supremely fast mental fibers because he adapted to grass so quickly. Fourth tournament, 12 matches, Wimbledon champion against the man who was at least trying to equal being the greatest grass court player ever in Novak trying to equal Roger Federer's record of eight titles. So absolutely phenomenal. And he even mentioned that, uh, Novak, in his speech at the end, which I thought, uh, I think a lot of people took wrong, but uh, it was interesting that he mentioned that record. Obviously, he had it in his head that Roger has that record. Well, Novak, of, of all the big three, himself, Federer and Nadal, by his own admission, is by far the most concerned with being, at least statistically, the GOAT. And absolutely, he is statistically, objectively, he is the greatest male tennis player ever. By his own admission, he's greedy. He wants to be the, for want of a better term, the GOAT hog, the GOAT on grass, which Federer currently is on eight titles. And And I thought what was even more interesting in what Novak said, and he was tremendously gracious and very, very adorable. You know, he took defeat painfully. He cried, but he also, he showed, he was, I thought he was incredibly magnanimous and it was very admirable, his response to what would have been a painful defeat, what was a painful defeat. But the thing I took from it was that he said... And this is paraphrasing, and I hate to paraphrase, but I did. Ch- he he essentially said that he'd never faced a player like Alcaraz before, that both Federer and Nadal had their weaknesses, and he said it in such a way as to suggest that only he knew what those weaknesses were, which would make sense. <laughs> right. But he right. said he went, and again I'm paraphrasing, but he went on to say that Alcaraz had no has no weaknesses, which is obviously the other aspect that players. Great players, great coaches, great commentators, anyone who loves tennis, 
he is already potentially the most complete male tennis player we've ever seen. Potentially, he has to have the longevity of a great career like the big three to compete with them. But other than injury and serious injury at that, which I obviously hope doesn't befall him or anyone, he has a... For example, he has a chance over time, certainly, to win the calendar slam, which up to now, and it probably won't happen now, none of the big three have achieved. Such is his dominance over everyone else other than Djokovic. That would be certainly plausible in the next few years. Yeah, it was really quite stunning how mentally tough Carlos was to be able to come back in the second set and then to hold in the fifth set. I think really showed tremendous mental strength. Absolutely. I mean, the mental aspect of tennis is often talked about, but it's absolutely there. It's probably one of those sports that you're not playing it more of the time because of the break between points. You know, not like a a continuous team sport like basketball or football, for example. You are thinking more between points. So, And given what had happened in Paris, which itself was very shocking because precisely because he'd appeared so bulletproof mentally, it was difficult to understand why that had happened. But what was even more extraordinary about Paris, I think, Philip, was his reaction afterwards, where in the press conference afterwards, an hour, a few hours maximum afterwards, he was very open about it. He was almost smiling about it in the sense that He said, I was nervous, I got it. It was his first time facing Novak at a major with with Novak going and going for and eventually winning the outright GOAT status, winning his 23rd major. But as I wrote before the tournament, and again, I'm sure there are lots of people who deep down would have predicted this, but he's such a fast learner. You see it, you saw it in his first, I think it was his first significant tour win in Rio in February of 22 last year. Essentially, he had to beat three top 10 players in about 24 hours because of rain delays. And he did to win the tournament. And that was something that you thought, this is extraordinary. I wrote at the time that he seems to do impossible things. And this was one of the impossible things to beat the great Novak Djokovic, who was going for his eighth Wimbledon title, in an all-time great final. And as you say, Philip, showing enormous mental strength to do so. And even more maybe than Djokovic, because you really expected uh, Novak to have the upper hand on mental strength. He's done it time and time again. He even, uh, you know, alluded to it in the Federer-Wimbledon match and, of course, the U.S. Open match against Federer as well. But the two backhands heard around the world, if if I may, <laughs> uh, you know, where he missed and hit into the net. I mean, his go-to shot, his golden shot backhand, uh couldn't believe that he couldn't deliver in that tiebreak. Well, it is a testament to Novak that I think it's evident there for the next, hopefully, at least for the next year, 18 months, it will be largely Novak v. Carlos Alcaraz at the majors, I think. They are the two truly great players. It's extraordinary the age range between them. Um, I don't think, I may stand to be correct, but in the major professional sports, I don't think you've ever had that vast an age range of 16 years between the top one and two in the world. Novak is rightly praised for his mental strength. I mean, he wouldn't have won 23 majors without it. And Right. But equally, he is only human. It's the old, the wonderful old expression, 
about time heals all wounds, but it also wounds all heals. The very greatest athletes eventually, eventually will begin to decline. I mean, I'm not saying, not even necessarily saying he isn't, he is declining yet, but Federer has retired. Uh, Nadal has said next year will be his final year. And even Novak can't go on forever. You saw that in Rome when when Holger Rune beat him there, which was rather like Carlos Alcaraz last weekend at Wimbledon, the young Djokovic beating the older Djokovic. He is such a phenomenal physical specimen, such a great athlete that I'm sure he can absolutely play. I'm I'm sure he wants to win 25 titles at least to go past Margaret Court so that he's the go on both men's and women's side of the draw. But it should be a thrilling... I mean, we've got the US Open to come. They're all surface players. So potentially, hopefully, if injury permits, we would see a succession of great finals over the next year, 18 months. And of course, he's going to take this so seriously and improve his game and improve his matchup against Carlos. I I think there was a feeling that, as you alluded to in the beginning, this is a a real change, a real uh, challenge to the dominance. And I think that's got to hurt for Novak, not only because of this one specific thing, but because he's always wanted to be dominant, even though he is, as you said, objectively dominant. He's never really had the time to just be able to enjoy that luxury. Uh, He's always been fighting, fighting, fighting against Federer and Nadal. You thought that maybe this year he could do the calendar Grand Slam, he could take his victory lap, this would be it. But uh, he was robbed, maybe. Well... I suppose after all this time, and it stretches back really about a dozen years, you could call it domination. It's extraordinary what he's done. I mean, every, by almost every optic and every metric, he is statistically the greatest. And, you know, he beat Federer three times on his favourite surface. He beat Nadal twice on his favourite surface. They don't have comparable records against him. As you say, um, he absolutely wanted to dominate and he has done by any reasonable measure i i will pay tribute to a, a terrific british tennis writer i hope i pronounce his name right to many carol of the guardian who wrote it could galvanize djokovic because in alcaraz he now has a great rival of the caliber of federer and nadal and that will as it has in the past force him to raise his game sure yeah, yeah, and he and he's done that time and again in his own career. Absolutely. So there's no doubt that he's going to come back for it. And I think he even alluded to something like that in his match that he or, or the press conference that he's looking forward to it. Right. Forward he's looking forward to the U.S. Open. I believe he talked about that. That he was hoping yeah. again it would be. I would imagine that they will be one and two seeds again. That they'll be seeded to meet in the final. At the moment, they certainly should be because. Um, it was worth bearing in mind what they'd done to their semi-final and quarter-final opponents, both of them. They had clearly beaten them comfortably. I mean, Alcaraz's run, we were talking about the historic nature of it. What was extraordinary was he beats three generations of great players. He beats Holger Rune in the quarter-final, who is probably the second best player, young player after him. He beats Medvedev, a major champion, a truly great player, relatively easily, relatively easily by any measure. And then he beats the GOAT, you know, the biggest 
champion of them all in the final. I mean, it's, it is genuinely historic. It's wonderful. And you've got to bring to light uh, Alcaraz's um, spirit. You, you never really felt like he was tired in the, in the Wimbledon final, and he, he seemed to have more joy. By contrast, obviously, Djokovic was very frustrated. And then to have that outbreak with the racket and smashing the net post, and, uh, you know, it was a kind of a contrast of energy, don't you think? There was a contrast of energy, but obviously there was a huge contrast of energy at the end of the first set when Novak had effectively breadsticked him, as I believe the term is, 6-1. And uh, and obviously at that point, Carlos Algarath was very flat. However, it's the word you use, joy, or any variation on that, joyful, joyousness. That is the quality that Algarath communicates when he plays. And that's very difficult and rare. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's sufficiently extraordinary to do anything as well as these great athletes do it. To be able to relax enough to positively enjoy it and then communicate that joy to others is remarkable. It's almost unprecedented. Um, it's certainly very rare. And that seems to be the case with Carlos. He's very young. I'm a much older net head. And I would say that he is such a... He seems a remarkably open character, which I gather, even from my own children, is a quality much more valued uh, among younger generations than it may have been in the past. He's very open, as he was after Paris, after cramping, when he immediately admitted it was wrong, no, no prevarication, no excuse, it was wrong and I'll fix it. And he does communicate joy. The great story about him, which I'm sure you've heard, but it's worth retelling, was when um, it would have been his first Masters title when he won it um, in Miami last year. And as is the custom around the world, especially in Melbourne, the champion will dive in a nearby river or lake. But Carlos Alcaraz, when he won it, um, he insisted that all the ball kids, the ball boys and girls, who were some of whom were about his age, all jumped in with him. And it was a very natural <laughs> sharing joyous reaction and that yeah, was very, great very community yes, well it's it's nice. also it's wonderful for tennis because it's had what i call the three gods of tennis the big three the gigantic three would be more accurate because no other sport no other sport has had the three best all-time players in one generation it re even even the great boxers of the 70s the heavyweights you Ali and Fraser would make the top 10. Would fall, You might have three of the top 10. You don't have the top three as you do in tennis. It's that historically amazing, not just in tennis, but in all of sport. And in Carlos Alcaraz, it's the next generation. He is the perfect post-Big 3 player. As Novak was suggesting, and as other people have written, I've certainly written, he seems to have the best element of each of the Big 3. He, he volleys like Federer, he baselines like Nadal, and he defends like Djokovic. It's an extraordinary combination. Yeah, and his drop shots, right? Oh, <laughs> well, that's another story, because, of course, the drop shot only works because he has the power. It's the classic one-two punch where he sure. blasts a player back behind the, ba uh, the baseline with his great forehand or backhand. They're equally brilliant. And then he can exe execute the drop shot. I, I wrote today in another context that it was, it is power and beauty, Nadal and Federer. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. And you saw it time and again against Djokovic. He kept bringing him in and then passing him. It was the one-two punch, as you said. Very, very succinct, and I'm sure a big part of his plan. Was it 11 of 12 drop shots that he executed? It's incredible. I must confess, um, as I said, being an older nethead, Philip, I'm more of a narrative than a numbers guy. I absolutely value numbers and know the use. I would probably struggle to remember the exact statistic. He certainly won the majority of them, probably the overwhelming majority. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. And and you saw Novak actually trying to come forward a lot more. Uh, was it in the third set? And you you felt like maybe he was trying to shorten the points, but it just wasn't working. Well, I must confess, like many, many tennis fans around the world, I three or four days on last night, I watched the highlights of the final again. And like the best stories, it was even better this time around. And it is worth saying that the, you measure the quality of a victory against who you have defeated. And in beating the GOAT, that's an extraordinary achievement. It really was absolutely historic. I mean, it was... But what was so important was it was it was tennis at its best, that they were bringing out the best of each other, that they were literally producing shots and extending each other in a way that no other players could at the moment. And that was why tennis in particular thrives on the great rivalries. Pete Sampras was such a great champion. No one could compete with him at Wimbledon, especially. So he doesn't have a, you have Borg and Makaro, Federer and Nadal. There's no Sampras Anne because he was so, so good. You need rivalry, and hopefully in Djokovic, Alcaraz, it will inevitably be short-lived. But then again, I'm sure I read somewhere recently that Novak was talking about playing till he was 50, and if anyone could, he could. (laughs) Um, You know, he's probably thinking, 25, I want to win 50. That insatiable desire is, is the definition of a champion, the multiple champions, the... You know, he's in the absolute elite of sport with the Jordans, the Pelés, the Bradmans, because he's won so much over such a long period. Yeah, and had to overcome some, you know, truly gods of tennis, as you said. Well, he's fellow deities in Federer yeah. and, and Nadal. And and it is always worth saying, and, and this was, um, I'm sure it was pointed out by others, but this was pointed out by Russell Fuller of the BBC, that... Djokovic inevitably suffered because he became he came along slightly after Federer and Nadal, and they were so great that most people had picked a you know you're either Federer or Nadal. There weren't that many people left for Djokovic. There were later as those two great champions, especially Federer, began to decline, and he he is probably more popular among younger tennis fans than older tennis fans, but. Novak, I mean, it's one of the great stories, it's a great human story, the the child who escapes war, who has to go across Europe on his own because his parents can't travel with him, and becomes the greatest of all time. That human story always needs to be more borne in mind with Novak Djokovic. I personally do not like his stance on vaccination, to say the least, but purely in sporting terms, he's one of the greatest champions there's ever been. Yeah, and you have to say that because of his stance on vaccination, he might have been two titles uh, heavier. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's certainly, I mean, you again, as many people have said, you can admire the principle. Most people, whatever their view, would have thought, well, I want to play at these tournaments. As he said, his principle on this issue, at least, is such that 
he has foregone those opportunities, but that's his choice. As I say, I personally do not like his stance on it, and I don't like the fact he became a, a poster boy for it. Unfortunately, he was the most famous anti-vaxxer, and that will always stay with him. However, he's a truly great champion. His is a truly great story. And I, as I say, um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully this great Wimbledon final being the first instalment of at least a few truly great finals. The US Open should be spectacular. Yes, something to look forward to for sure. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been a pleasure having your insight and look forward to a lot more times where we can get together on Tennis Pal Chronicles and talk about tennis. Um, It's great to have you from uh, London talking about what we are. Where are you exactly? Are you in London? I am in... um... I am in London. It's Balham, which is just south of Clapham Common. That's the easiest way to express it. Great. And where do people find your articles? Where do they go? Um, I write for lastwordontennis.com, as I said, um, or LWOT for sure. If you just search for LWOT, equally, you can just put my name, Martin Keady, author, LWOT will take you to my articles. Great. And on Twitter, we got to have them follow you. I'm on Twitter. I have um, not the not the easiest handle because I, I, long story, Martin is a very common name. On Twitter, it is at, it's all, all lowercase to be exact. Um, it's Martin without the eyes. M-R-T-N-K-E-D at M-R-T-N-K-E-D. <laughs> it's hard to come along. Uh, later and and try to get a a great name, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one that you can easily pronounce or spell or remember would be good. (laughs) Very nice. Well, thank you so much, Martin. I know you need to rush off, but we are so honored to have you on the podcast and look forward to talking to you again. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Philip. Thank you very much for having me, and I do hope we can talk again in the future. Great. Thank you. Bye.